Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I am your host, Alex Gruskin. It's Oklahoma Sooner Week here at Cracked Rackets. We had so much fun last night with our interview with the men's tennis coach, Nick Crowell, that we decided let's bring on another Sooner. So I am so happy to bring back what, in my opinion, will be the better of the two Oklahoma coach interviews. We have former college All-American and NCAA singles champion, career high of number 229 in singles and 271 in doubles and current Oklahoma women's tennis head coach Audra Cohen coach welcome to the cracked interviews podcast thank you that is an impressive resume from the get-go I will say by far the most impressive of any of the coaches we've had on well I I feel privileged for that (laughs) uh, that comment but uh, you know I mean I think when you look at your own career you kind of you're so hard on yourself and that's probably why you get a resume at that level, but you know, you're just so tough on yourself that you see it as normal. So, um, you know, from my end, I, I feel like I've been blessed to be around great people that have helped me grow along the way and just been really fortunate to have had the career I've had. Well, let's talk about some of those people. I know you grew up in Florida, I believe Plantation, Florida. You know, the entire state is known for its junior tennis, one of the hotbeds of tennis in the country. How did you get started in the game? You know, what got you going with tennis? Yeah, what's interesting is I, nobody in my family plays tennis. Um, Everybody's actually in art or in film. And I grew up in California until I was 13. And then we moved to Florida. And Uh, for my mom's job, actually, in the art industry. And so I I just kind of did tennis as something to do after school in California. And then when we moved to Florida, I met this, uh, a coach named Bill Clark, and I grew up at Bill Clark Tennis Academy. And that's kind of, it was an after school program at the time. and, And I really just played after school every day. I went to normal school, I grew up pretty traditional, um, compared to, I think, the how most tennis players are growing up now so um just kind of played after school and and got really good I mean really good is an understatement I looked back at your tennis recruiting you know St. Thomas Aquinas class of 04 shout out to St. Thomas Aquinas actually I had a tennis coach he might be I don't remember what class is a guy named Josh Molino ring a bell yeah 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 so he was my yeah he was my high school coach uh, what was it, 2012? And so it, it just there's a St. Thomas Aquinas uh, connection yeah, for us. But, you know, you I are think a, Josh went to Bill Clark's also. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I know a lot about the tennis scene. I do not know about the Plantation Florida tennis scene. I, 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 I've gotten a little better at it, but I will say, you know, you blue chip recruit, number three recruit in the nation. You, you've had so much success on the junior circuit. Was there any thoughts for you? I know you played some pro events before college, but for you, was the decision always I wanted to go and play college tennis? Yeah, I think for me, the decision was that I always wanted to go and play college tennis because I grew up as normally as possible. Um, You know, I think had I played in a full-blown ITF circuit, junior circuit schedule as a junior and really I I did homeschooling and did that whole whole route, I think it would have been a different, you know, a different path I I could have chosen. But, um, you know, for me, I was a little bit immature and I needed to go to college and I knew that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, you may have been immature, but tennis-wise, your game was certainly you know, progressing well. You go to Northwestern, you win the first 28 matches of your college tennis career. Uh, you know, you did transfer during your time in college, and I do want to talk about that a little bit. But just entering the college scene, having that much success right away, was it something you expected? No, and I think that, uh, I think that's why it happened. You know, I came in with such a humble respect for for what college tennis was, what the level was. And so I knew I had to work really hard in every match. I didn't come in thinking that, okay, college is a little like I should have turned pro. I I was good enough to turn pro. And, 
you know, I, I can come into college and I'm going to do well, no matter what, like these programs are lucky to have me is what I was, I, I wasn't ever thinking like that. I was kind of almost surprised, but I knew that I, I could achieve that level at that moment. Otherwise it probably wouldn't have happened, but I, I guess I, I didn't expect it. And it, it definitely was uh, an interesting first semester of just going to all Americans, the first big tournament and um, pre-quality quality, and then winning the main draw. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I went from just a freshman to being number one in the country. And it was a big transition at that point. I think how I handled it for the rest of the year was maybe not the best way, but uh, <laughs> But it, it it definitely the hardest part about it was was probably maintaining that over years was well, more more special to me I guess. Well, you know, going to school on Lake Michigan, it's distracting. That lake is beautiful. <laughs> I can only imagine. But you know, before getting into your college time, I want to talk a little bit more about that transition. Uh, you know, as a head coach now, when you are recruiting, you are obviously looking for kids that you think will do well in that transition. And I'm just curious, having gone through it yourself as a player, probably at the highest level of recruiting, you know, you can experience, you have plenty of offers as the number three recruit in the nation. Uh, how, how does that experience weigh on you as a coach now and how you not only, you know, your attitude towards recruiting players? Yeah, you know, I think I do, I guess, compare my experience personally at times, but for the most part, I don't. And the reason why is because kids are so much different now than they were before. I mean, when I I remember being in college and and social media, I remember Facebook being invented, you know, like (laughs) being something big. And now it's so much of it is so it's a lot more image driven and um, it's just a completely different set of things to compare. Uh, had I grown up at this time and been going to school now, I think I, I, I more so compare how I would have looked at it if I were in this time um, versus like exactly the same experience. Uh, so I think the thing I look for the most right now in recruits is, is their upper level. So there are a lot of players that can come in and and just tap out there that's as good as, as they're going to get they're pretty stubborn or like maybe stuck in how good they are physically there's not a lot of space for them to improve and I really seek players that are able to improve over their years but also um, willing to and wanting to and and wanting to put in that extra hour uh, to work on something that maybe is a little uncomfortable for them. So I really look more towards that because those are the players that are going to be your leaders and the ones that buy into the program over their entire time. You're not going to have to win them over. They they have that drive inside of them to be that they want to be good. And I, I try to steer away from the ones that are like, well, you know, I, if, if I go to college, then I'll, I'll talk to you. You know, I mean, it's that that's where it gets a little tricky for me. Absolutely. And if you were to give advice to recruits, because as you mentioned, things have changed. There are so many tournaments now located in so many different locations that players feel pressured to fly to to get the exposure in front of college coaches versus, you know, how available video content is now uh, to, you know, record your own matches, save that, be able to use it not only for film, but maybe for outreach. How would you advocate to a player to, you know, not exposes the wrong word, but to to get the exposure they need so that all of the coaches can see them. How do you think is the best route for a player to go about that now? I think the best way to get exposure is to play. I mean, you got to go out and play tournaments and you have to play tournaments that are, um, you know, the, the ones that more of the coaches are going, are going to be recruiting at, but also to update the coaching, the coaches on what tournaments you're going to be playing. Uh, we get a lot of videos and a lot of recruiting recruiting uh, resources like their emails. Um, you know, we'll get a lot of stuff like that from the agents around. But uh, there's there's nothing that can replace going and watching a recruit play it live in person. And and you can feel the match. You know what you're getting. You feel like you understand how they compete, how they approach competition. And I mean, that's like the the nuts and bolts of it. Um, <laughs> So I think just informing the the coaches on your recruiting schedule. Yeah, absolutely. And now, you know, transitioning that from 
uh, to the college tennis. In terms of knowing if a player will thrive in the team atmosphere, you obviously thrived in the team atmosphere yourself, but can you talk about that adjustment to playing college tennis versus, you know, playing your traditional junior tournaments? Yeah, I mean, look, this this is that's the hardest thing in our job is we're taking a bunch of players that were completely individuals, like their parents did everything for them. Everything revolved around their tennis. And we're taking each of them individually, putting them on a team and expecting them to all get along, not be selfish <laughs> and be great teammates. Like it's actually a very unrealistic thought process. And so that is probably one of the most important parts of recruiting is like some people might look at the recruits we've gotten over the last two years and say, Hey, like she's not that good or, or have something to say about their level overall, but there is nothing that they can say when every day I got to go to work to every, every day and work with these players. <laughs> I mean, these players have to go to work with each other every day. And so like, regard, let's put talent and all of it aside at the end of it, we are building characters, like we're building people together. And through that, if, if we have too many stubborn minded individuals, it's not possible. So I often seek character and who they're going to be as leaders for the program for the long run. I, I seek players that are going to fit that mold really well. And, and that being said, you know, one of the, my favorite things is I, I love the Ted talk about super chickens. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's like, <laughs> They take, long story short, they take the chickens that produce the most eggs in each of their pens and they put them in one pen and they end up killing each other because like <laughs> they, they all want to be the best. And so it, it, it always works better when you have one or two great leaders and you don't need, you don't need 10 of them. You know, sometimes you actually have to recruit more followers. Um, yeah. It really depends on where you're at in your in your recruiting cycle and what you have currently on your team. And I do look at that a lot. I think that's one thing that that uh, I pay particular attention to that many coaches around the country don't always pay attention to. Yeah, and you know, in terms of finding that balance again to try and relate this to yourself you obviously have all this success at Northwestern your freshman year you know your Big Ten freshman of the year player of the year all American in singles and doubles NCAA finalist and yet you end up transferring to the University of Miami in Florida um Obviously, for you, you're going back closer to home, but I'm just curious, why did you make that decision to go down to Miami? Yeah, I mean, I obviously, South Florida is my home, but I, I think what people might not have seen at that moment was I had a really major back injury, um, and I had back surgery that summer. So I didn't even know if I was going to go to school that first semester when I transferred to Miami. Uh, I had two screws put in my back and I had a big cyst removed out of my nerve canal. So it was kind of like more so this is this was a move for, for my health as a player. And if I wanted to play, I needed to go somewhere where it was it was warm. I could train all the time and, and I could really dial in with my tennis. It, I had a, a great support, a support group around me. So I didn't have as many distractions. And, and you know, I think, I actually really loved Northwestern. I liked the school. I had a, a really cool knit, like a close knit group of, of other athletes and friends that were all very intelligent. And I liked that part of it. Um, but, you know, for me, I wanted to be a tennis player. And, and so much of my decision was really based on my health, what was best for my tennis and my career and, uh, and also going home so that I could have a great support system there. And I, I am just curious though, uh, a bit of a, you know, uh, off-topic thing here, but in terms of transferring, it is a phenomenon in college tennis. We see a lot of players, you know, jumping around between schools, and I'm just curious what you think of the transfer process. Having gone through it yourself, do you understand why players might make that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think I think my transfer is a little different, though. I mean, yeah, of course, transfers that are uh, in number one in the country, getting to the finals of NCAA's, and then saying, "Hey, I want to go somewhere else," but. Um, usually they're pretty happy in that case, but, uh, you know, I think for the, the whole transfer thing in tennis, the one thing that people don't often see in tennis is that we start the highest proportion, especially on the women's side, we start the highest proportion of our headcount. So we get eight full scholarships and we start six players. 
So there's always this expectation from every recruit, oh, I'm going to be in the lineup. Yeah. So when they're not in the lineup or if they're not in the lineup, it's like it's not their fault because they've really never failed. I mean, these kids are, are usually the best at, in their area or have you know been highly ranked and, and been very good. So I think we as tennis players often trend towards the blame game. And I think that's a big portion of why things can go sour and then look for the grass is greener on the other side outlook and typically I find that you'll find a few transfers that will really excel at the next university but more often than not it's not much different yeah and you know getting back though to your time in college I I don't want to pass over it because again you had such a successful career you talk about making that adjustment as a transfer for you you get to Miami you're fortunate enough to stay healthy and your you know your team goes on an incredible run but you yourself you go 76 and 4 in your time there you're ranked number 1 in the country again you know all of this success your team makes an NCAA final um was it then that you fell in love with the college game did you think you know i at some point must return to this game you know whether it's in coaching or however yeah absolutely i think that whole experience we had such a cinderella run in my sophomore year my first year at miami I mean, we had no business getting to the finals that year. And I think you could probably ask anybody on our team. We, I, I just remember kind of bombing out of the ACC tournament. And then all of a sudden we're in the finals of NCAAs. And um, I just think we, we had a, a group of girls that, to be honest, like, I don't even know how it really works. Like we just all every day, everybody pushed each other. Like we were competitive with each other, but in a healthy way. And I think that's, that was the difference maker. We, the, the better players on the team called everybody else up instead of calling them out and, and calling them down, you know, and, and making them feel like they're not good enough. But like we called them up. And I think that really speaks to who I am now as a coach and, and how we run things at OU is like, we, it's not about saying you're better than somebody. It's about having enough self-confidence and enough sureness about who you are to be able to ask a teammate to do more, um, not because you think you're better than them. And I think that was something that, uh, you know, I really learned at Miami, but also I learned as being incredibly important for the future success of a program. Absolutely. Um, I do want to ask, though, for you personally, at that point, you have, you know, you're having so much success in college, but there must be pro aspirations behind that. Did you always balance those pro, you know, those pro aspirations in college, preparing yourself for life on tour, or did you think, you know, I am just going to play four years of college tennis and see what happens? No, no, I actually, uh, the year I turned pro after my junior year, and I had actually decided in January that I was going to turn pro, and I did it because I knew if I didn't do that, I was going to freak out at NCAA <laughs> and put all the pressure on like one tournament and think that one tournament was the was the whole shebang like that was my career and so I it it kind of set me free a little bit and uh let me just use my game and play uh play a little bit more free but I will say that I didn't I I don't think that I prepared as well as I could have for the tour I will the other side of it is that it was a difficult time um you know the economy crashed in 2007 and 8 and so, you know, it, it was different than it is right now. And uh, and not to leave an excuse on the table, but I, I do think that um, there's such a great opportunity, especially with social media and everything pumping for college tennis. Uh, there's such an opportunity to gain notoriety when you hit the tour. You've got sponsorships in place. You've got, uh, you know, things in place the right way. I don't know that I did it exactly the right way. If Looking back, I would have done it incredibly different. But um you know, I think now I at least can guide people to do things. You always learn, like, you learn from your mistakes and then you teach the future not to make the same mistakes, <laughs> just like parenting. Um, uh, so I, I think one thing that I do bring to the table for recruits that do want to turn pro is is maybe not do it the way I did, but don't do it the way I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they should do it the way you did. And the reason I say that, and you know, it's going to take us to our first fun segment of tonight's show. Uh, Westoff, if you could cue the game show trivia, please. 
so Coach Cohen, in I want to take our listeners back to the $10,000 Evansville, Indiana ITF Women's Circuit event, July 25th, 2006 to July 30th, 2006. For a little perspective for you, I was a ripe age of 10 during that time. So you're right. Times were very different then. But I want to let our listeners know that at this event, you know, you are a hotshot coming off of a great college season. You took home your first pro title. And one of the theories I have about tennis, because it's an individual sport, uh, we tend to remember our big matches and biggest moments better than other players just, or other sports just because, you know, you rem- you have one opponent. You remember who you're playing. So I want to ask you, Coach, finals of your first pro uh, or your first pro final, who were you playing and what was the score? Shoot. Um, was I playing Lauren Albanese? Look at you. That is correct. And it was six and something and something. It was, <laughs> was it three sets? It was three sets. It was three sets, and one of the sets was seven six, and I won three in the third. <laughs> two six six two six one. Oh, but you know, even better. Yeah, I've, I, you, you got, got the I'm three sets. I knew I played Lauren Albanese. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was gonna say that's much better than Coach Crowell. He didn't get the name. I think he might have gotten just the score, which was pretty impressive. But it was weird. Um, yeah. So well done. Uh, so you know, you have that success on. Um, the pro tour you talk about times being different then uh what did you take from your experiences being a professional tennis player and why do you think they've helped you now as a coach i think uh the biggest thing is is just the lifestyle you know i mean i think i grew up around like i said a normal family a, a team i loved college tennis uh, my even my high school team was pretty solid like uh, <laughs> you know, for me <laughs> For me, like the loneliness and the lifestyle and just the kind of like, it, it almost felt numbing mentally. And so I think the the thing that I learned and it, I, I tell this to players now that are that are about to turn pro or, or going out there is like, have a hobby that you can do anywhere that you like, that you, it, it's yours, whether it's going to school online, whether it's like, uh, trading stocks, whether it's whatever it may be. I mean, playing poker online, like it, it, it could be many things, but, but have something that is kind of uh, a mental distraction because it can, it can really be kind of brain numbing if you just throw all your eggs in one basket and you're just too obsessed with tennis all the time and you're around only you and your coach or like just tennis people. It, it can be a little bit like unrealistic to live like that. Well, can I just say how I know you are tennis obsessed is because I am also tennis obsessed. And one of the things I can do is talk about my high school tennis matches. So I love hearing that little reference. Yeah. So that is great to hear. I I love the idea, though, of having another channel, something you can do off the court, get your mind right. I want to do one more thing before we talk about your coaching career. It's another trivia question. Uh, you won multiple doubles titles, but again, I really want to focus in on this first doubles title. So let's take our listeners back to the $10,000 Landisville, Pennsylvania event, May 20th, 2008 to May 25th. This is your first doubles title on tour. Do you remember who you were playing with and who you were playing against in the final? Yes, we were playing Heidi Eltebach and maybe Courtney Nagel and Sell, Kathy Sell. Um, I'm looking to see, I have something, let me, let me see this. I have something different and I don't want to be wrong because that was a confident answer. So I'm worried. I'm no, wrong. no. You know what? You're, you're right. I, that was a different year. <laughs> it wasn't the first yeah. year that I, I have, I, I, I don't want to give it away. I don't Guess. remember who I played. So I'll give you in the semifinals, you played Sloan Stevens and Lauren Herring. Oh That's yeah. My hands. I remember that. You did play – wait, Catherine Sell and Courtney Nagel. That was the round of 16 match. Oh, see, at least I got one match. Yeah, you're in you're, – so you have the term – the final, I have Anna Fitzpatrick and Stefania Bofa. I don't know if I said oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. six three seven six. Well done by you. If did I play with Heidi Eltebach, though? Yes, that was correct. You know, the only reason I remember that is because I had to go back and play a 10,000 because I had – 
I didn't have a, a doubles ranking, but I had the semis of a hundred in Mexico <laughs> and I won a 25 with Megan Moulton Levy or like got to the finals and I didn't have a ranking cause I didn't have three tournaments. So <laughs> I couldn't even get into some tournaments. Like so I had to go back and play 10,000 and just, and we ended up winning it. Well, you talk about that 25,000, a great win for you over Spiegel and Alvarez Tehran in the final. That was an, another event we could have talked about. Um, but yeah, again. I would have never remembered that one. <laughs> well, I will say I'm also impressed to see you played a pro event in 2017. What was that about? Yeah, so we hosted Norman Open 25K. It was the worst decision I've ever made. <laughs> like... I really couldn't have made a worse decision, but uh, last minute there was a, a there was a one of the teams that we were giving a wild card to got in on their own, and there was nobody on site, so we just decided with my assistant coach, like who's who's much better than me now, like uh, I, yeah, I just all I can describe about that experience was I knew exactly where the ball was going, but I was never where it was. <laughs> But I could tell you where they were going to hit it. So I guess my coaching's gotten much better than my tennis. That's good. Oh, who who took the lead? You or your assistant on the court? Um. Well, I think uh, I think I think I did. But the problem is I just couldn't execute. <laughs> oh, I love to hear it. Well, again, it's kind that... of like when you give your players the right play, right? Like you're like, okay, this is the perfect way to beat this player. It's still, you give them a play that's actually within them. Like they can execute it, but they're just off that day. So like, what do you do? I think it should be a requirement that any college uh, university that gets to host their own professional event, the coaches have to play. I'm all in on that. I think that would be so entertaining. That's why we make the pro-am. <laughs> Exactly. Well, then let's transition into your coaching career. You know, now you are at the University of Oklahoma, but before that, you you started back home in Florida. You were coaching at North Florida in 2011 after serving a two-year stint as an assistant at the University of Wisconsin. Um, what was that transition like going from player to coach in college? Yeah, I mean, I think at first it's difficult because um, because – I was still young and, and still like fresh. Like I still um, would be a little bit too competitive maybe at times in on the court. And I still felt like I, I had enough to, you know, to beat them, not to beat them, but like to, I would get pissed if I was missing, you know? And now it's like, well, shoot, if I'm missing, I'm, I'm more mad that I'm messing up the practice. Like I, I think uh, it, the, just the difference in that is, is definitely substantial. Like as you get older and grow into a coach more. Um, but, you know, I think what was important was I, I, I did go back to school and finish before I started coaching. So I, I did a semester finished my, and got my degree and then went into coaching. And I think that was kind of an important semester of just kind of not playing and just being, not being too obsessed with tennis and being away from it and then missing it. And then when, so when I got to Wisconsin, I was really excited about it. And then heading into North Florida, I was just, you know, excited to be back in Florida, excited to be uh, a head coach and, and had a lot of rebuilding to do there. But, uh, but that challenge was just so, it was so fun. And it was, it was a, a new challenge every day, little things along the way, little speed bumps, but, the growth overall, I, I wouldn't exchange that for anything. And, you know, again, it seems like wherever you go, you've succeeded. At North Florida, you go 77-27 and 27 as a coach. An incredible 36-1 and one mark against conference foes. I mean, that's domination. Um, how do you go about building a culture like that to where, you know, year in, year out, you can sustain that type of excellence? You know, I, I feel like there's no easy explanation for that. There's no easy answer there. I think it's day by day. It's like little drip by drip and you just keep, you keep building a machine and each day you, you have to be creative and find different ways that the machine can get better. And you're given these restraints, these, like, I think of them as like little, little laws here and there about what you can and can't do with your machine. And, and that's, you got to work within those and at each university at each program it's those laws those little things in the way they look different they feel different and you just have to deal with them in in a creative way and i feel like 
the only the one thing that that I've been able to be very successful at is is finding creative solutions and being really resilient about that like if I can't figure out a problem like I'm gonna think it think it through a million times until I finally find a solution that makes sense and visualizing like how that solution fits in to to the long run is also uh, something that I've, I've gotten better at over the years so you know, I can't say that I knew we would be successful right away at North Florida, but uh, it's just a matter of getting everybody to want to get better and see how they can get better and then helping them to to do it day in and day out. Yeah, a- absolutely. And again, I, I we've gone 30 minutes so far and we haven't said a word about Oklahoma. I swear we will get to it. Um, my last question about North Florida, and it, this dates back to my theory, and we've dwelled on a lot of victories, but I have another theory that, f- you know, for a lot of people, it's the losses that hurt the most. Do you remember the one in the 36-1? and one? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, is that – so for me – those are the ones where I like, I dream about them. I'm like, oh, if I could have done this differently, this differently, this differently. Have you had that thought? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you don't have that thought, you're not human. But, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things, and I, I just did a, like a Hall of Fame speech, not like I think this was last year or two years ago uh, at University of Miami, and, and they were reading my record of 74 and 4 or whatever it is, 73 and 4, I don't know. And And I said, like, when I got on the stage, I said, you know, it's funny. It's like, I had no idea that was my record. One, two, the only matches I remember are the four I lost. <laughs> like, legit, the only matches I remember were the four I lost. Cause like, you just, but those are the ones that just drive you and, and that they're, they run, they run heavy in your brain, but they also run heavy in your motivation. So it's, uh, they're, they're a blessing in disguise. Absolutely. Well then let's finally fast forward you know, at the beginning of the 2016-2017 season, you are brought on as the OU women's tennis program new head coach. You know, you make the transition from a life in Florida and you're moving to Oklahoma. Just on a personal level, what is that like for you? Yeah, it was a little bit like I, I will say I had a few nights of freaking out before I got here like, <laughs> where I'm like, oh, my gosh, like this. I, I can't do this. But it, you know, what's interesting about OU is like it, it, people think of it as the middle. It's not the middle of nowhere. It's actually one of the most beautiful campuses I've ever been on. Uh, it's an unbelievable athletic department. It's the, the mastery they use, like when everything has such a purpose and uh, it's just brilliant the way that, that things run. And, and I think that for me and the, and the staff that we're around all the time and the kind of people it really makes the place. And so the place actually is, is a lot nicer than I anticipated, which was all a benefit, but also the people are, are just extraordinary. So it, it really hasn't been a, a very difficult transition. I find it a pretty easy place to live and uh, I love it. Everybody cares about OU, which I think is super important. And people love tennis more than they ever thought they did. And uh, just bringing some energy into tennis here has been has been really fun. Talking about your transition in terms of being the coach, you hopped on to a team that had you know three freshmen, but the rest of the players were juniors and seniors. So you have an older team. Uh, when you come into an environment like that as a new voice, a new coach, how do you connect to the players so that you know they don't feel a disconnect since you didn't recruit them, but they still want to buy into the program? Right. I think it's, that's probably the hardest thing. That was the hardest thing in the transition. And, um, you know, you gotta, you have to meet them halfway. And there were moments where I wasn't willing to meet them halfway. And there were moments where they weren't willing to meet me halfway. And, uh, and, you know, that's, that's the honest truth of it. And, you know, it's the most difficult thing because you have this expectation of how to run a program. You've been running a program at, I was running a program at North Florida and, you know, we built the machine there and, and kind of got to the point where like, it's, it's about as good as it, as it can get given the resources that were being pumped into it. And, um, and then, you know, and then take on a new challenge where the resources are phenomenal and, and your expectations of what you can do with those resources are so different than maybe what the player's expectations are or, 
or uh, you know what the the staff around you's expectations are. So it was definitely a difficult transition, and I I really you know I hate to say that it was difficult for myself. I think it was probably the most difficult for the players that that were here before uh, our staff arrived. And so you know I think that's a that's a tricky situation. I I feel like they didn't sign up for it, and and I mean obviously we didn't sign them as recruits, so um, they're the ones that have to kind of deal with it and uh, I think we did our best to find halfway and I think they had a great experience some decided this is not the place for me and moved on to other places and are doing great now and and I wish them all the best I mean I think that at the end of the day it's the hardest situation when you're it I, I always explain it like two families that you have two divorced parents that get together and they have kids from previous marriages and yet you have to make this one family out of these two families and <laughs> it's not easy so you just have to kind of figure it out and it's not going to work perfectly and i feel like we've done our best to just make it work and 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 still see that we can experience some success here and there and and get better and we don't have to completely uh change our expectations you know you talk about uh your transition your team did have some immediate success they go 14 and 8 that first year surpassing the previous mark of eight wins uh before conference play even began uh you obviously have a player reach the program's first NCAA singles championship since 2004 uh and then in year two you know you guys go 15 and 12 um again you have another NCAA singles championship appearance um but now it's year three and you've had some time to have your recruits come in you know, what are the expectations for the 2018-19 Sooners? And, you know, do you feel it's at a place where finally you are settled in? Yeah, absolutely. I feel settled in. I mean, expectation-wise, I, I always try to steer away from this question. And, and I'm <laughs> going to give you an answer that's definitely going to steer away from it. Because, uh, you know, I think expectations, you know, like we have such a young team. Our most experienced player is one year in at OU. So, uh, you know, like we have such a young team full of talent and we, we had a couple of girls that were ineligible last year that that will be eligible this year and uh, you know, how they play in and they've been training and, and getting better every day and working hard. And um, we've kept them so patient with the process, but they're just dying to get out there and play. And, and so just that hunger to be good, to get good, to, to be more for the program is there. Um, you know, I think, like I said, we're still, we're still pretty young. We, we need to get a little bit more disciplined with our shot selection and things like that on court and a little more willing to deal with the girls in college tennis that can make 6,000 balls and, um, and, you know, just kind of put you to sleep and we have the talent to beat them, but, but the discipline needs to improve and it is every day we're on them and it's, it's getting better, but expectation wise, it's, it's hard to say, you know, it, it has so much to do with health and, uh, and also how we deal with adversity, nerves, expectations, all of these things. But we definitely have a much, uh, a, a very talented program right now and, and a program that, that has a high upside. And if we maximize ourselves, we, we could be very successful. Well, I look forward to watching it and getting an actual answer from your team's results. Uh, um, so that'll be fun. I the do proof's ask- in the pudding. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I do want to ask, it's interesting because not only you, but for Coach Crowell, you guys both come in that uh, that summer of 2016. Um, ha- have you guys bounced ideas off of each other, tried to build Oklahoma together? Or, you know, is it, how, how has that worked, having two coaches come into a similar situation? Yeah, it's actually been absolutely phenomenal. We've bounced ideas back and forth. We've worked really closely together on on major projects. We hosted a, a huge alumni event that was both men's and women's tennis, the first one that's ever been both both sides together. And, uh, you know, we had like 90 alumni come back out of only like 130 alumni altogether. So, you know, for us, we, we've done a lot of big projects. We run a, a junior programming and adult programming we run all of it together um our volunteer assistants run it and we have a a head pro that runs all of that through the club and you know i think being able to do that with nick and having him, him come in at the same time um has just really made that an easy transition and i think for for both of us we understand that 
together we we can do more for the game itself and for our programs and when we partner up it's like the energy we can create is is massive and just getting more people involved and out to matches and all, both of our teams are pretty tight they both go to all of each other's matches and support each other so you know it's something we really have built that sooner tennis family and in our facility and and it's something that uh, I definitely am used to at North Florida that's that was how we lived and died I mean we we were not uh, an incredibly, we didn't have the same resources as we have at OU. And so we had to fight for everything together um, and stick together. I think being at a smaller mid-major really teaches you that lesson of the importance of it. So I'm really grateful that Nick's been great about working together and, and building our sport together. You talk about the college tennis environment. It is so fun. You know, when college tennis is good, it is phenomenal. You just have that intimate crowd. Everyone's on top of the court. You know, you have just such – it's such a great atmosphere. I, I do want to ask your perspective. One thing that's gone on in college a lot recently are scoring changes, you know, try, trying to make matches shorter, no ad, abbreviated third sets, shorter doubles. Um, what is your perspective having played college tennis back when it was two out of three sets, you know, ad scoring and no questions asked? Yeah, I, I just, I'm not a huge fan of no ad scoring. I think, uh, yeah, I'm not a huge fan, but I will say, <laughs> I will say this, that there is a part of me that wishes that we had no ad scoring when I was playing. And the only reason I say that is because I think it does encourage you to develop weapons that you need on tour. Because if you get to that, that no ad point, that deuce point, you, you go after something. And I think that's important. And we have a lot of counter punchers in college tennis. So it does encourage that okay I've got to step up to the line and have a one-two punch that I'm going to just be really confident and really aggressive about I think that would have helped me personally as a player when I hit the tour because I would have had to to know what my weapon like just to use weapons more often and become really really confident with them um so but but the other side of it is like okay what we we have more cheating on deuce points we have a lot more controversy (laughs) like are we really speeding it up? There are a lot more three setters. Like, so uh, I, I think overall the better design would have been to change our actual format, format, not our scoring. I think a, a simultaneous format would have been a better option where we play yeah. doubles and singles at the same time. And, and no one plays twice. Yes. I, yeah. I like that. I like it. My ideal college tennis, like if I could write this, this format out for everybody would be doubles in the middle and you play five courts doubles in the middle and then two singles on each side of the doubles match and everybody plays two out of three sets straight up and uh the first team to three points wins so my only issue with that is to me there's no thrilling more thrilling moment in all of tennis than the doubles point in college the doubles point is incredible just the thrill of it goes so quickly you know it's sudden death Uh, oftentimes it comes down to one court and then all eyes focus there so there is the thrill of leaving that alone that being said everything going simultaneously just as yeah i mean it's like a big doubles point really (laughs) because you have like that's that's the problem with our doubles point is you just you nailed it everybody leaves after doubles and <laughs> that's true yeah that, like and that's then they a... read about who won at the end <laughs> well i promise you i do not do that i am sticking it out all the way through nothing is more fun than a good hook on a clinching point it's that is... true it's true exactly um i i do you know we want to be conscious of your time and i want to end with a rapid fire segment but one more question about oklahoma uh you you don't want to give predictions and that's totally fair but i do want to ask uh for a fan coming to an Oklahoma women's tennis match this year, what do you want their takeaway to be about your team? Energy. That's it. Like we, we bring energy. Uh, We want, we're in every match. We're intense. We're emotional at times, but in a way that's like, because you want to win so badly and you're, you're working so hard and just that intensity. And, you know, we've got, players from all over the world we've got an argentinian who's like super super emotional and like 
just willing to put her heart on her sleeve. We've got a Ukrainian who's just like, all right, I'm going to get this done. Um, we've got a Brit who's just angry about everything some days, but still can hit the crap out of the ball. And, uh, you know, it's like we're, we're kind of that fairly odd couple of a team. We are, we are all there because we want to be good. And I think that energy really speaks to it's a lot like I was as a player. I didn't act perfectly all the time, but <laughs> but uh, there was an intensity that was there that that is just uh, it it was true to who I am, and and I definitely recruit players like that, and and I coach like that. So I hope that that's what this program uh, says for everybody. I I love that answer. I lied. I'm going to sneak one more question before the rapid fire. Because you have the unique perspective of not only playing in college tennis, but you've coached now at a high level, you've seen it all. To our listeners who may not have been to a college tennis match before, what is your pitch for why they should go to their local college's tennis matches? It is not an event that you can watch on TV and appreciate nearly as much as you can when you're watching six courts go at one time and you're stressed about one court and then uh, then that court's over or that court split sets and then all of a sudden you're stressed about two other courts it's uh it's the perfect setting for anybody with a lot of ADD that loves tennis <laughs> oh yeah you can jump around from court to court I love that and the thrill again you're always going to see something funky whether it's a let cord whether it's a hook, something great. Um, Watching a match on like fast forward, like really fast where you're only going to the big moments, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. And I would never advocate for leaving a match early, but if for some reason you only have one hour on your Sunday, go for the doubles point. It's the most thrilling hour of tennis you will see. It's just, it's thrilling. And, you know, shameless plug, I've been to the big house. I went to Michigan and those are great. But when you're on top of these courts, there's something else. And I'm, I'm a tennis – so go check those out. Go check out your local college tennis matches. But all right, with that, let's do one more thing before we go. We always love to end by throwing our guests through a rapid-fire segment. I'm going to throw a bunch of questions your way. They should have short answers. Um, there may be a few gotcha questions in there. I want to make you a little uncomfortable. Uh, but you know, you know, whatever comes to the top of your head, that's the answer I want to hear. So you ready to rock and roll? Yeah. As long as you employ my three second rule here. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's where the swearing's going to come out. I was waiting for this. <laughs> All right. First question. Favorite city in the world? Miami. Uh, of course. Favorite meal? Uh, my dad's sauce on Sunday. We call it gravy. It's red sauce. <laughs> oh, that sounds, are you Italian family? Yes. Ah, that's I know the vernacular from hours on the Food Network, um, which leads me to my next question. Favorite TV show? Oh, um, how to get away with murder right now. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. If Miami plays Oklahoma in the B or in the uh, national playoffs, who are you rooting for in football? Uh, Oklahoma, that's a silly question. <laughs> you know, Coach Crowell said the same thing, uh, but then he may have said something off off the mic that was very funny we'll we'll leave it at that um all right another fun one our name is cracked rackets i want to ask you when was the last time you cracked a racket Ooh, the team didn't even know that this happened but we lost to wichita (laughs) state i was so pissed and i had a racket that was in the in the uh, locker room that was it was mine from years ago it's like really old and uh, yeah, I just took it. I, I got, I was kind of cleaning out that locker. I took it home. And once I got home, I went outside on the patio and I just smashed the crap out of it. <laughs> like, I was so mad. Oh, I love it. Well then maybe one or two more before we go. Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? I hate both. Sorry. <laughs> and our number one player last year was Lily Miyazaki. And she absolutely loves Harry Potter. We went to Universal after a match in in Orlando and she was so excited she got a bloody nose in the line waiting to go (laughs) and I just like can't even relate I I think they're both silly yeah (laughs) I love it well then 
again, last set of this will be really quick fire, but having played college tennis, half of the fun of being on a college tennis team is the stuff you guys are doing off the court. You obviously had a, a very unique college experience getting to play with two sets of teams. I want to ask you some questions about your teammates in case they listen to this. Um, of your teammates back in the day, who is your favorite to get dinner with? Uh, gosh, probably Romer at Northwestern. <laughs> We ate Chipotle until we were like the freshman 25. <laughs> well, in 05, Chipotle was a new thing. So It I was a it. new thing, and one of our friends won the free Chipotle for a year at the volleyball game. And so, like, <laughs> we just, uh, yeah, we were a train wreck. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, then, again, in college tennis, you practice a lot with your team. Which of your teammates was the biggest hook? Ooh. I hope she's not listening to this. But I would say there was an Austrian girl, Patricia Starzik, and, like, she would call everything out. <laughs> well, half the fun, you do it at practice to get under your teammates' skins. You got it. You have to. A little bit, a little bit, yeah. Or if you just are, like, insecure about losing. You know, it was different for me because, like, they knew they couldn't get away with it with me, so... <laughs> All right, well, then here's the last one. Of your teammates back in the day, who was your favorite to go out with? You're in Miami. It's a night on the town. Who's the crew? I would say probably uh, Valverdu, Laura Valverdu. She's, uh, she's actually <laughs> the assistant at Miami now, so I hope she's listening to this. <laughs> well, I am glad to hear it. Well, Coach Cohen, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Cracked Interviews podcast. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, it was actually a lot of fun. Oh, of course. Well, you know, I love the surprise in your voice. I've scared a few away, but I'm, no, I'm don't hoping. Worry. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, again, we will be rooting for the Sooners all year long. If you are at all near them, maybe they're coming to you at some point during the Big 12 season. Go check them out because you will love Coach Cohen's team's energy. It will be a fun year. Again, thank you so much. We look forward to watching guys throughout the season. And I reserve the right to call you again and bring you back on. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, yeah, take care, Coco.